0: Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson.
1: Hi everyone and welcome to our continued study in Foundations for Discipleship. We're now gonna move into the topic in theology called demonology. And so we're gonna study this in depth over several sessions. And again, if you want to get uh, the info for this, the notes I'm using, I'm gonna stray a little bit from the notes. Uh, You can go to ariel.org. This is Dr. Arnold Frutenbaum's material. And uh, you go on ariel.org and you go on store, and then you can look for demonology and then download that to your computer or print it out, whatever you want to do, and you can have these notes. Now, let me make a citation about that. I'm going to diverge a a few times in the study um, from my own particular um, interpretation of certain things, uh, which I respectfully disagree with Dr. Fruittenbaum. He has great material, but On certain things about demonology, I'm going to explain my opinion and give it as an option that um, you can uh, take in, ingest it, decide if this is for you or whatnot, or study it a little bit more. But anyway, I'm going to diverge a little bit, okay? So I'll talk about that as we go on. Okay, so um, in demonology... Uh, The first thing we have to start out with is to understand there are five common misconceptions concerning demons that we've got to deal with, right? And that's going to be part of the introduction. And the reason why these beliefs are wrong will obviously, when you study them, become very evident um, because of what the Bible says about demons. So um, let's look at these first five wrong views about demons. Okay, um, The first wrong view uh, of demons is simply that they don't exist. And of course, that's what mainstream culture wants to say. That's what actually some churches will say, that demons were only for the time of Jesus, or they it's just a myth or whatever, and really these people were mentally ill. It's not true. Demons do exist, um, past, present, and future, and they always have and, uh, since... Genesis 6, we'll talk about that. And so anyway, the the wrong belief is that demons don't exist. It's totally wrong. The second wrong view is that demons are not personalities, but are just basically evil emanations without personalities. That's not true at all. Demons have personalities. Okay? Um, and, and obviously, they're just not, when you say someone has their own demons, I know the culture will say that. It's talking about influences or stuff going on in their head, and not personal beings and some type of power. No, they are personal beings. Uh, they, they, they are spirit creatures, and they have personalities with them. So, a third wrong view is that demons are responsible for every sin. So, you get some people on the extreme that, that every sin a person does, they'll blame it on a demon. And that avoids responsibility for owning them doing the sin that they're doing. Now, some sins are attributed to what demons can do to to influence a person, no doubt about that. But you can't say all sin is that way, okay? Um, And that every sin a person commits is due to a demon or Satan or whatever. Um, You know, it's that Flip Wilson mentality, the devil made me do it. Um, You can't use that. That's that's not what happens. Um, Anyway, um, we'll talk more about that, but that's a wrong view to say that every sin... Is caused by a demon. A fourth wrong view teaches that demons are responsible for every form of physical infirmity. Now, we'll we'll note this in the study, that some physical infirmities are caused by demons. Some, but not all. Okay? And so you have to understand that. They do not cause all physical infirmity. And the fifth wrong view of demons is that they're responsible for every form of mental uh, illness or infirmity. Now, we'll say this, and when we get into it, they're responsible for some mental infirmities, some mental illnesses, but not all mental illness is caused by demons. And so you don't want to shift to the polar opposite and say there's no demons, and then shift to the other opposite side and say, "Uh, demons cause everything. Yeah, You just can't do that. You're going to have to find the, the biblical balance of what the Bible says they can do. Okay. So... Let's go into the existence of demons and talk about um, how they exist, where they come from, their origins, and of course, you know if you read the Bible, the Bible teaches the reality that there are demons okay um, they're all over the gospels um, and you see that even in the last times in the book of Revelation there's going to be demons and stuff that people worship and so um. Interesting enough, every writer of the New Testament, except the author of Hebrews, will note that they're demons. The teachings and actions of Jesus, obviously, when, the gospel, when you see them in the Gospels, show the existence of demons as he exercises them out of people. And and, uh, and also the, the disciples, their dealings with demons, uh, including the 70 disciples, recognize the existence of demons. And you see that's in Luke 10. So... The Bible recognizes them, okay? So they're a fact. They exist. Some of the names of demons um, are given in Scripture. And we're going to look at the Old Testament names, and then we're going to look at the New Testament names. So let's start with the Old Testament names. Um, the first Old Testament name is Shadim, which is a Hebrew word that means to rule or to be Lord. It is used of demons in Deuteronomy thirty-two, seventeen, 17, Psalm 106, 37. Uh, the name emphasizes a demon's desire to be lord over or to rule over a person from the inside, okay? By indwelling them or controlling them. And, and even from activities from the outside can influence a person to act a certain way, okay? Another Old Testament name is Sarim, which refers to demons who have the form of a goat. This is why uh, you see in Satanism and Paganism, they have all these goat images, um, because this particular demon looks like a goat. Uh, As you'll see later in our study, demons have animal-like features, there's no doubt about that. Some have a form of a goat, and these are known as Sarim. So it's no accident. A lot of satanic groups use the symbol of the goat head for um, their symbolism. Um, this name is used of demons in Leviticus 17 and Chronicles 11, Isaiah 13, and Isaiah 34. Anyway, other Old Testament names. Another name is Lilith. Lilith. And this is a Hebrew word that refers to a night demon, or demons of the night. It is used of demons in the Hebrew text of Isaiah 34, 14. Okay? And we'll talk more about that, but it shows you that these demons are active during the night period. And that's why we see a lot of high high demonic activity at night. Okay? Uh, Another Old Testament name is evil spirit. Okay? And, and, and basically, when you see the Old Testament reference that, it's referring to the demon by its nature, that it is an evil spirit. Because demons are spirit beings. Um, so that's why that name will be given to them. Another Old Testament name will be lying spirit, um, a term that basically characterizes what demons are. They're liars. They're characterized by falsehood. Uh, another name in the Old Testament uh, is familiar spirit. Now this is interesting. This is used of demons who are involved in with witches, spiritists, and things of that nature, okay? Demons that reveal themselves through medium wizards, witches, are familiar spirits. Now, interesting thing about familiar spirits, the demon has the ability to take on the characteristics of uh, a human being, an animal, whatever it might be. And that's why a lot of the, these people who go to psychics Um, think that um, they're being talked to by their loved one because the the demon is familiar with their lives and familiar like with maybe grandpa who passed away or grandma passed away and what the demon can actually do is mimic the voice of the departed loved one knows everything about the, the departed loved one can actually um Appear as the departed loved one can sound like the departed loved one and can smell like the departed loved one. You have the ability to do this. Now the demon will not take physical form but they'll see it in spirit. Okay? Is, is the idea. Like you talk about seeing ghosts and stuff like that. It's really demonics uh, manifesting themselves spiritually in a certain form. And that's why a lot of people get messed up about this because they think It's a loved one when really it's a demon who's impersonating the loved one, hence the name familiar spirit. So, that's that's what's really going on in all these things. Anyway, another Old Testament name is Gad, uh, which means fortune. There's a demon of fortune mentioned in Isaiah 65, 11. So, like, in a lot of the cultures where they have good luck and, uh, you know... uh, tokens of good luck a rabbit's foot or whatever culture you're in this whole idea of fortune of getting fortune through good luck has to relate to this particular demon uh, another one is many uh, many which means fate this is another demon. this is found in Isaiah 65 11. the idea that this demon will teach is that people are fated they can't change and that this These demons, or these particular gods, or whatever they're called by certain religions, control the fate and destiny of human beings. This is why theological determinism is a major red flag in Christianity. When you hear someone talk about theological determinism, and what I mean by that is Calvinism, that God selects those he wants to save and selects those he wants to damn to hell, that is a form of theological determinism. But it actually comes from the occult, all major occult religions have fatalism involved in that where the gods control the fate of the person and the person doesn't have a choice the person does, can't change the fate the person doesn't the person has no ability to get off that track in Christianity in the Bible. People have the choice to make about their lives what path they will be on they can choose the narrow path and they can choose the broad path and and so this this particular demon um Issues this false doctrine through many religions, and as you can see, has infiltrated Christianity in what we call Augustinianism uh, or Calvinism, of de- and what we call it is uh, theological determinism or Fatism. Your fate's decided by the gods, or, or in this case, by God Himself. That comes from this particular demon, okay? So it's not biblical, okay? Anyway, another Old Testament name is Elilim. elim And this is often translated into English as idols, okay? But it actually refers to demons of idolatry, okay? So behind every uh, idol or idolatry is the work of demons. And those demons um, are basically, these particular demons are especially involved in the work of idolatry. And they're called Elilim, okay? And so remember, as Paul said, behind an idol is a demon. Remember that? And so when people worship false idols, demons are the ones they're worshiping. They're not worshiping, uh, you know, a so-called god. They're worshiping a demon. That's who's involved in idolatry, okay? Another Old Testament name is Ketev. It's a Hebrew designation that means destruction, It refers to those demons basically involved in the work of destruction, mainly destruction in the life of a person. They will destroy the person. Um, And that's their intention is not just simply to possess, but to destroy. They want to destroy the person. They can destroy the person from without, or they can destroy the person from within. Either way, their goal is to destroy If if this is the demon they're dealing with. So now let's move to the New Testament. And there are different names for demons uh, in the New Testament. Um, the first thing uh, you have to understand about the Greek text is that there's categories uh, that the Greek text uses uh, for names of demons, but they all cont- contain uh, the root for demon in the names. Okay, and the the the, the meaning of the root for demon is intelligence, okay? It's intelligence. Demons are intelligent beings. And the root word for demon is used 79 times in the New Testament, okay? So remember that, intelligence. They are personal, intelligent, spiritual beings, okay? And so basically from this basic root for demon, a total of six different forms have developed in the New Testament. The first form is daimon. Uh, it's a D-A-I-M-O-N. It's found in Matthew 8.31, which means evil power. The second form is daimonion. neon Okay? This is the basic word for demon. And it is used total of 63 times. One example of this can be seen in Luke 4.33. A third form of the root is daimoniodes, which means uh, demonical. Uh, and it is used only once in, basically, James 3.15. The fourth form, form is zome, meaning to be controlled by a demon from within. Okay? It is used 13 times, and one such case is obviously Matthew 4.4. The fifth form is desodio monesteros, which means to be very reverent to demons. It emphasizes the occult world and is only used once in Acts 17.22. The sixth form is des daemonis, which means demon worship. It too is strongly connected with the occult world and is used only once in Acts 25.19. So, a second category we will see in the New Testament is uh, names containing spirit, Okay, and uh, the word spirit is used a lot, uh, in basically like forty six times in conjunction with demons, and there are basically five different names. First is evil spirit. Okay, second is unclean spirit. Third is wicked spirit. Fourth is seducing spirits. And the fifth name combines spirit and demon together as spirits of. Demons, Revelation 16, 14. So there's different names in the New Testament that you have to be aware of. Okay, now let's go to the personality of demons. So the question becomes, are demons just merely emanations or influences or powers? Uh, No, they are not. They have personalities like we talked about. And there are three attributes of personality that we have to be aware of. If it can be proven that something has all three of these attributes, then that something is a personality. And these three attributes are intellect, emotion, and will. Okay? Let's talk about the intellect. Do demons have intellect? The answer is obviously yes. This is evident in six ways. First, demons know who Jesus is. Secondly, demons know their own future doom, by the way. Thirdly, demons know both Jesus and Paul. Fourth, demons know that God is one. Fifth, demons have a counterfeit system of doctrine. And sixth, demons have the ability to communicate by speech. So very clearly, demons have intellect, which is the first attribute of personality. Second, demons have emotions. They do, in two ways. First, they have the emotion of fierceness and anger, found in Matthew 8.28. Second, they have the emotion of fear. Matthew eight twenty nine, James two two nineteen. So demons have the second attribute of emotion, and lastly, will do demons have a will? Again, the answer is yes, and this can be seen in three ways. First, they have the will to make requests. Okay. Secondly, they have the will to obey commands and orders, particularly from the Messiah. And third, they have the will to leave a person and seek a new place to live or to return to that place which they formerly lived. as in Matthew chapter 12. All of these basically are evidence of an exercise of the will. So, they are personalities. Okay? Let's look at the personal pronouns used for them. There are other ways that it can be proven that, that demons have a personality. The New Testament speaks of demons. It uses a personal pronoun. It will never refer to a demon as an it. Okay? never refers to demons as an it. Which would be natural if demons were emanations or powers or whatever. Instead, the New Testament texts uses pronouns. We, us, they, your, and I. And they also use me in dealing with. Uh, in dealing the text, dealing with demons, so the personal pronouns are used again, illustrating personality. So now, let's talk about the origin of demons. Okay, so there's debate on this, and this is where I'm going to uh, go off script on the notes. Doctor Fruitenbaum believes, um, and I respect his views, and a lot of Christians believe this, that angels and demons are one and the same that the same term demon is being used for fallen angels, and fallen angels are the same as demons. There's a lot of people that believe that, but there is debate on this. And I am on the other side of the debate, and there's plenty of good scholars that believe that demons are different than fallen angels. I take that side because of the evidence, I think, in looking at the Scriptures and noticing there is a difference between a fallen angel and a demon. I'll talk about this, okay, in just a bit. But... This is debatable. I'm not going to be dogmatic. If you want to take the position that fallen angels are the same as demons, no problem. It's not It's not something you divide over. But this is my view. This is a view of a lot of scholars um, that angels and demons are different. Okay, If they're different, then that means they have a different origin. Fallen angels obviously were created by God. They're as good angels, right? And then they fell with Satan in that first rebellion, right? We, we all know that. And he took those angels with him, and they served him, okay? Well, if you hold to the view that demons are from a different origin, and that they're different than fallen angels, then where this side of the argument comes from, is, is it comes from Genesis chapter 6, okay? And basically, just to state it right at the outset, and then we'll unpack this, is many scholars believe that demons are not fallen angels, but disembodied spirits of the Nephilim from Genesis 6. Okay? So that's where the origin of them comes from. Okay? So, let's... We'll study Genesis 6. And uh and we'll we'll go into it because if you're if you're gonna know this position, you have to know Genesis six. You have to understand Genesis six and what happened in Genesis six so you can connect dots. So let's let's start with that real quick, okay? So if you go to Genesis six and you read verse one, it says and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born unto them. Well, verse 1 emphasizes the multiplication of humanity before the flood, okay? The Hebrew word for men used here in the text is, gen- is a generic uh, word and refers to humanity in general, okay? Which would include male and female, all right? The word as such cannot be limited to the sons of Cain. That's the mistake a lot of people make when they look at this translation. And they interpret it as the sons of Cain. It can't. It's a generic term for humanity, male and female. Okay? So it would include both the Cephites and the Canaanites. And both of these groups died in the flood, okay? Anyway, another key word found in verse 1 is daughters, which is a Hebrew word that means females. Okay? The emphasis in the second part of verse 1 is this: that daughters were born unto them. Um is on the female portion of humanity at that time, okay? Again, the expression cannot be limited, as some teach, to just female descendants of Cain. That's not what the text allows you to do. It is simply a word in the Hebrew that means the female portion of the population. That's all it means, okay? This is trying to show you that the Sethite view isn't compatible with the context of Genesis 6, so in verse one, it could read, humanity multiplied and daughters and females were born unto them. So the distinction in verse one is not between male Cephites and female Canaanites. That's not what's happening in, 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 verse one of six. But the emphasis is on the female portion of humanity in general, which would include both Canaanites and Cephites. Okay. Now, let's move to the intermarriage that happens. Genesis six, two. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all that they chose. So verse 2 describes an intermarriage. Let's first talk about the sons of God. The first key phrase in verse 2 is sons of God. The phrase sons of God is a general term which means to be brought into existence by God's creative act. Because this term in the Old Testament carries this meaning, it is used very, very selectively, okay? Throughout the Old Testament, the term sons of God is always, always, always used for angels, okay? The banacha elohim. That's what the term means. It refers to angels. It's never referring to men, okay? It only will refer to people in the New Testament once they're born again. Because the spirit that God creates in them, that new spirit that he regenerates with them, is a direct creation by God. That's why we are given the terms children of God or sons and daughters of God after being born again. But it's not used in the Old Testament like this. So you have to stay within the framework of the Old Testament. Okay, so this is very clear that when the same usage is compared to the usage, uh, obviously in other Old Testament passages, like in Job 1, verse 6, Job 2 verse 1, Job uh, 38 verse 7, no one debates that in these other places where sons of God is found in the Old Testament. It, it, no one's debating that it refers to angels. It does refer to angels. okay? But some want to make Genesis 6, 1 through 4 the one exception to this with no facts or evidence to back this exception up. There's no reason to change this. Um, they just, there's no warrant to make it. You just go with what the Scriptures tell you. Scripture interprets Scripture. When it uses a term for a particular group, it means that particular group. It's not interchangeable with other groups, is the idea. Okay? So you have to be hermeneutically consistent. So the Banaha El-Khims, the sons of God, always refer to angels. In this context, they refer to fallen angels. Okay? So in the New Testament, like I mentioned, the, the term Son of God is expanded. God, Adam is called the Son of God, right? We know that. Luke 3.38 because he was brought into existence by creation of God directly. And believers are called sons of God in John 1.12 because believers are considered to be a new creation according to Galatians 6.15. But in Genesis, the text is dealing with a specific Hebrew expression, benah elohim, and is used In the Hebrew Old Testament, consistently like this, the distinction in verse 2 is not between Sephites and Canaanites, but it's between humanity and fallen angels. The word men here emphasizes humanity. The term sons of God emphasizes angels, fallen angels. It's that simple, okay? Just follow, follow along. Let's talk about the daughters of men. The second key expression in verse 2 is this, daughters of men. This is a generic term for women, which includes females of both Sephites and Canaanites. Okay, But the verse is saying is this, that the sons of God, the Banaha Elohim, saw the daughters of men, females. There's no justification for this verse to be interpreted to mean godly males intermarrying with ungodly females. You have no justification for arguing for that. So this is what you want to ask people who take the Sethite view. Would truly godly men marry ungodly females? Is that how it works? No. Godly men would not marry ungodly females. But anyway, that's just a question to ask. But anyway, the context doesn't allow you to 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 make this uh, distinction between Sethites and Canaanites. It's, it's, you can't do that. Anyway, the daughters of men simply mean womankind in Hebrew. And the sons of God... As we've talked about, refer to angels, fallen angels. If the meaning here is kept consistent with the usage elsewhere in the Old Testament, the passage is clearly speaking about fallen angels intermarrying with human women. This is obvious in two ways. First, it is always a one-way intermarriage. It is always sons of God marrying daughters of men. There is no record of daughters of God marrying sons of men. If the distinction was between Sethites and Canaanites, it would simply it simply would not happen this way. In a human society, intermarriage occurs both ways, right? Males marry females, females marry males. Today, saved males sometimes marry unsaved females, and sometimes saved females marry unsaved males, right? We know that. If the other claim were true, it would mean that male Sethites married female Canaanites, but that the male Canaanites never married female Sethites, which is entirely unlikely. It is, it, the theory doesn't work. So intermarriage would thus be confined, if you, if you take the Sethite view, confined to godly men with ungodly women, but not godly women with ungodly men. It just doesn't make sense, right? So, but what we see in Genesis 6, there's a one-way intermarriage. Banacha Elohim, the sons of God, are intermarrying with females of the human race. That's what Genesis 6 is teaching. Sorry, you can't interpret any other way. Secondly, the context clearly speaks of a cohabitation that is unusual and unnatural and causes a worldwide flood. Genesis 1-4 deals with the angelic cause of the worldwide flood. So while Genesis 5-6 deals with the human cause, uh, the cohabitation between Sethites and Canaanites would not be unusual or unnatural. But cohabitation between angels, fallen angels, and humans would be. Right? That's the problem. So those who do not like this teaching object to it by quoting Matthew twenty We've heard this so many times. Claiming that this verse clearly teaches that angels are sexless. Not true. Um, For in the resurrection they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but as the angels in heaven, is the verse they quote to counteract this view. Well, guess what? They need to pay particular attention to the details of what Jesus said. What Messiah was saying uh, is that human beings at the resurrection and in heaven... Do not marry, nor are they given in marriage, at the resurrection. The angels that Jesus was speaking of are angels in heaven. The comparison is not with angels in general, but with angels in heaven. The emphasis is that, that in heaven, good angels neither marry nor are given in marriage, And Matthew 22, 30 makes the same point about human beings. Humans in heaven do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. But what about humans here on earth? Well, as you see, humans on earth certainly do marry and are given in marriage. Okay? So this is the detail they're failing to tell you. This is a contrast between what happens in heaven uh, as over and against what happens here on earth. Right? Genesis 6, however, is speaking of angels not in heaven, but fallen angels on earth. That's the difference. That's the detail they're leaving out. Okay? So you're, so G- Jesus is affirming, and we would all agree, angels in heaven do not marry. Angels in heaven are good angels, nor are they given in marriage. And humans in heaven don't marry either. It's obvious, okay? but angels are never declared to be sexless i don't know where people get this in fact angels are masculine in gender and the gender uh the ma- the, the masculine gender is always used for them matthew 22:30 teaches that angels do not procreate after their kind meaning that angels do not give birth to other angels you know why all angels are males god created all angels to be males and so the fallen angels are males as well it is medieval art medieval literature that made angels into babies and angels into females they are not and please do not point to the two the two women that carry the basket with wickedness the woman wickedness in Zechariah chapter 5, that is a vision. It is not angels. And it's clearly not angels because they are two women. They have stork wings. And it's all symbolic. It's not real angels. So those two women that carry the basket back to Babylon, that's a vision. And the women represent something. The, the, the wings of a stork represent something. So please do not make the mistake that angels are female based on Zechariah chapter 5. Those are not angels. It's a vision, which meant it has a message behind it. The women nurture the the whore of Babylon back to Babylon. But anyway, I don't want to digress too much. But anyway, angels are males in gender. Okay? So that's why they can't create angel babies, so to speak. Right? But anyway... In both the Old and New Testament, angels are always described in masculine gender, gender not in feminine, nor are they described in the neuter. Whenever, whenever, whenever angels become visible, they are always appeared as young men. They are never appearing as women. That's consistent throughout the whole entire Bible. So, Matthew 22.30 cannot be used as an argument against the angelic interpretation of Genesis through 4 the Matthew 22:30 passage is dealing with the situation in heaven, not on earth. The Genesis 6 passage is dealing with what happened on earth. So you can't mix the two, and one cannot correct the other. Okay, so here's another question: Why did Satan have some of the fallen angels intermarry with human women? Why, why do you even do this? Why mess with the genetic coding? Well, the reason to be understood by investigating the greater context of Genesis. Okay? So three chapters earlier, the first Messianic prophecy is recorded, Genesis 3.15. Right? The seed of the woman will destroy, will crush Satan's head. So this prophecy declared that the Messiah would be born of a seed of a woman, which is unnatural, which, which alludes to a virgin birth, and that this seed, the Messiah, would crush the head of Satan. Okay. What was happening in Genesis six one through four was a satanic attempt to corrupt the seed of the woman by having some of his angels take on human form. Again, angels always appear as young males when they take on human form, and basically intermarry with humankind to try to corrupt the genetic line, to corrupt the seed line of the Messiah. Thus, the events of Genesis 6, one four were a satanic attempt to nullify the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. So if Satan could basically um, mess around with the human DNA so bad that, that these things are not human, but they're Nephilim, then the promise of the Messiah couldn't happen. So Messiah w- would have been prevented from coming from the seed of the woman. So it's a whole DNA thing, right? Messiah not only has to be God, but he has to be 100% man, 100% man, okay? There can't be any genetic flaws with um, you know half this, half that, right? The result of this intermarriage was the judgment of God. And so Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for that he also is flesh, that shall his days be a hundred and twenty years. So in verse 3, God pronounces the judgment. The Holy Spirit would not continue to strive with this kind of evil forever. And God decreed the destruction of humanity to be fulfilled in 120 years later. That, that the means of the destruction would be the flood. Okay? So the purpose of the flood was to destroy the product of the union of the angels and women as we're going to see discussed in the next verse, okay? They created a hybrid is what they did. So that was the primary reason for the flood, okay? And it says that Noah is perfect in his generations. It's talking about his genetic code. Those eight people on that ark were 100% human. The rest of humanity had been infiltrated and adulterated in their genetic coding with these monstrosities. Now we could turn to Genesis 6 Here's the product of the intermarriage. It says, the Nephilim were on, were in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same were mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. So let's talk about the, the term Nephilim. Okay? In some translations, the word Nephilim has been translated uh, to the word giant. So if you read the text, um, especially in the Septuagint, It'll say giants, but that's not the full meaning of the word. It can mean giants, and there are obviously were giants that this unholy union created, but Nephilim really means fallen ones. The, the word does not refer to just simply giants in a strict sense, and just to huge, huge beings, but to a race of, of creatures called fallen ones, okay? The reason it was translated as giant is very interesting. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, done in about 250 B.C., the Jewish scholars translated verse 4 by the Greek word uh, gigantes, which means titan. But if we turn to Greek mythology, what were the titans in Greek mythology? Oh, if you recall, they were part man and part God. Do you remember that? Because they were products of the gods and men. So when the Jewish scholars in 250 BC translated the word Nephilim to Greek, they used a Greek word for Titans. Remember the clash of the Titans? Because they recognized this to be a union, not of two types of human beings, but instead they were correctly viewed as a a union between fallen angels and humans, which produced a being... That neither was angel angelic nor human, but a hybrid genetically. So the Jewish scholars who lived so, so much closer to the time of Moses originally wrote this passage, clearly understood this to be an intermarriage between angels and human women. So as a result of this union, a new race of beings called Nephilim or fallen ones uh, came into being. They they were Giants, there's no doubt about it. Some of, some of them were giants, like Goliath, right? Some of them were like, had superpowers. Some were, you know, un- unbelievable humans being able to do certain things. But it, it didn't mean all of them were giants. It, mean, it just, some were giants, but some of them had superhuman sh- uh, strength, uh, abilities that were not coming from human side, but the human side, but coming from the angelic side, okay? They were basically a superhuman. So these extra capacities that they had, both mentally and physically, um, so, uh, again, then again, you know, not all of them were larger in size, but they had these, these physical and mental abilities and spiritual abilities, by the way, as well. So when you look at the mythologies of the world, and you'll see all the ancient mythologies have these half men, half gods, that were produced by the gods, right? It doesn't matter what culture in Polynesian, uh, Aztec, Mayan, you look at, at uh, Greek, Roman mythology, and all the ancient cultures of the world, they have these these clash of the titans uh, type of story. It all derives from Genesis 6, 1 through 4. They're corruptions of a true story. And and these, these mythologies, if you read them, Record how the gods from Mount Olympus intermarried with human beings on earth produced children who had superhuman characteristics and were greater than men but less than gods, right? That's the truth about it. That's what Genesis 6 is talking about. Thus, the book of Genesis details the true history of what happened. While Greek and Roman mythologies have a corrupted account or Polynesians or whatever. In the Greek and Roman mythologies, the human perspective is given. Okay, And what happened is... Uh, is it elevated these people, these Nephilim, to something special and glorified them. But God, from his perspective, called this a major tragedy, a sin, and had to deal with them with the flood. So now let's look at the word gibberim. Gibberim in Hebrew means mighty men. Okay. Again, because this was a product to fallen angels and human women, they were unique they were called gibbering and notice that there is no mention of mighty women by the way which would be strange if there were a product of normal union okay but it's not so after all all a normal union produces both males and females but this union because it's a natural and the product that came from it were just simply mighty men and not mighty women okay So, it's just males are born to this, okay? Through this intermarriage. But the result is only mighty men. So, uh, this is a new race of beings that neither is human nor angelic, and they're all men. The only way to explain the origin of the gibbering is that they came from this union, which basically is the point of verse 4, okay? So, only the angelic explanation of Genesis 6... Do other areas of biblical teaching make sense? It provides the only adequate explanation for certain statements in Second Peter and Jude, which should be studied next, which we're going to do. It is a particular sin. It is connected to the flood, and it is different from the original fall of the angels. Otherwise, a fallen angel would be permanently confined because of what they did in this chapter. So, we're going to look at Second Peter. And we're going to look at Jude. Second Peter 2, 4-5 through five says this, For if God spared not the angels when they sinned, but cast them down to hell, and committed them to pits of darkness, to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the ancient world, but preserved Noah with his seven others, a creature of righteousness, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So verse 4 gives the location of the permanently confined fallen angels. Um, the temporarily temporarily confined angels are found in obviously the abyss, and demons are also confined to the abyss as well. But permanently confined angels are elsewhere from this Genesis six happening. The Greek words translated in the passage uh, uh, is it's hell in your English, but it's Tartarus. Tartarus is a section of Sheol or Hades, where the permanently confined angels are located, fallen angels, who did this in Genesis 6. Both the Abyss and Tartarus are sections of Sheol and Hades. The Abyss is for uh, demons and fallen angels that are temporarily confined. Okay, But Tartarus is for fallen angels who are permanently confined until the Great White Throne Judgment. So they're in the pits of darkness... And uh, they're reserved for judgment uh, uh, until the great white throne. Basically, this means that at no time will these angels ever be released. When the time comes, they will go directly to, uh, from Tartarus to stand before the great white throne judgment, and then eventually be cast into the lake of fire. Okay, there will never be a time when they will be free to roam. They are permanently confined. Okay, so verse five in Second Peter reveals the timing of their confinement, which was in conjunction with the flood. This agrees well with the events of Genesis six, one through four, which are the events that are connected to the flood, right? The purpose of the flood was to destroy the product of these fallen angels and human women called the Nephilim. So the timing of their confinement is the flood. Okay? By comparing the Second Peter passage with the Genesis passage, there is good evidence to show that Genesis is not speaking about Sethites intermarrying with Canaanites, but fallen angels intermarrying with human women. This is a valid conclusion just from the study of the Old Testament passages themselves. However, the New Testament also supports this particular interpretation. So now let's move to Jude. So in order to establish something, you have to have two or three witnesses. Well, we have two witnesses. One is Second Peter, and this one is Jude 6-7. through And it says that, that this, and angels that kept not their, their own principality, but left their proper habitation, uh, he has kept in everlasting bonds or chains under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, having in like manner with, them, with these given themselves over to fornication and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the punishment of eternal fire. Okay, what does this mean? Verse 6 emphasizes the fall of a select group of fallen angels, okay? And described in their fall is four statements. First, they kept not their own principality or state. The word principality is frequently used of the angelic realm, okay? The angelic realm is the second abode, the 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 space we would call it space, right there, you know, uh, outside of our planet, and is one of the various ranks within the angelic realm. Okay, it means that they did not re- remain in position or place in rank within the satanic cosmos. Okay, so they came down to earth. Okay, secondly, they left their proper proper habitation. They left the demo, uh, the um, the fallen angel sphere of operation and entered into the human sphere by taking on the form of young men and intermarrying with human women. Third, they are now kept in everlasting bonds under darkness. So here Jude mentions the same thing as Peter, that these angels are now permanently confined. Peter also revealed the place of their confinement, which was Tartarus, if you remember. Okay, so fourthly, they are to be kept there until the judgment of the great day. Again, Jude reaffirms Peter's statement that they are being kept in Tartarus, in bondage, until the great white throne judgment. Once again, it is reaffirmed that these fallen angels will never be free to roam around, ever but are permanently confined to Tartarus for what they did. When the time comes, they will be taken out of Tartarus and stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment, and then eventually cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so verse 7 deals with the nature of their sin. This is important to understand. The key phrase is this, in like manner, okay? So in like manner, as what? As Sodom and Gomorrah, they went after strange flesh. Ah, there's our cue. The sin that these these fallen angels committed is similar to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. The sexual sin of going after strange flesh. Strange flesh means sexual union that is unnatural or contrary to nature. Lesbianism or homosexuality. Okay? In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, as you know, the strange flesh was same-sex... Um, Uh, attraction, same-sex practice, okay? In the case of the angels in Genesis 6, who went after strange flesh, the strange flesh was human female flesh, okay? So instead of remaining in their usual state of residence, they invaded a new state of residence and went after alien flesh, or what we call female human flesh. It would be alien flesh to them, to commit gross sexual immorality. So the sexual immorality in the strange flesh is connected to Sodom and Gomorrah, but is used to describe what they did. So Sodom and Gomorrah and these angels have one one thing in common. They're guilty of sexual sins. That's the point Jude is making. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was homosexuality and lesbianism. In the case of these angels, these fallen angels, it was intermarrying, having sex within the human sphere, and producing Nephilim. Okay, so by comparing the Genesis passages with passages in Second Peter and Jude, it is very clear that these were fallen angels who intermarried with human women, and not simply Sethites who intermarried with Canaanites. Canine, uh, we have that view of fallen angels producing Nephilim. Okay. Nephilim are not savable because they're not human. Okay, uh, neither are fallen angels. They were given a probationary period, and there's no there's no salvation. The Nephilim have the nature of their father, a fallen angel. So that means they're evil in nature. They're a spirit creature with a body, and that means they're evil in nature because of who their father is. Okay. And also because e- even if any hum- human body that's passed on to them, has this in nature, they're evil all the way through. Okay, and in order to be saved, you've got to understand you have to be hundred percent human. Okay, if you're going to uh, accept the, the redemption that Jesus provides, this is interesting to note, and most people don't pick up on this when they read the Gospel of Job. But when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, in verse 5, he says this, Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, we all know that's the born again passage. You've got to be born again, right? You've got to be born of the spirit. But why does he say you have to be born of water? Now, that's a Jewish idiom. Being born of water must be, you must be born human. Born of water is is uh, coming out of uh, um, the mother as a child and her embryonic fluid, uh, her water breaks, and that embryonic fluid was called born of water. You have to be a human being. Okay? Why did he say that? Isn't it obvious that that you would have to be human to be saved? Well, we would think so, right? But why does he have to emphasize that? It seems like that's a, that's a given. It's not a given. It's not a given if you know Genesis six. It's not a given, because humanity was tainted, even after the flood. It happened in the land of Canaan, where there was hybrids. This is why the harem is pronounced by Joshua, or to Joshua from Yahweh, to destroy the entire village or city, burn it, kill the women and children, kill all the animals, and don't take anything from them. Now, the harem is not pronounced on all the cities they invade. It's only pronounced on certain cities. And and in, in, in what is pronounced on is Nephilim clans, giant clans. And that's why a harem will be pronounced. So it's not genocide. It's actually needing to get rid of creatures that are not fully human. They're hybrids. Okay? But isn't it interesting that Jesus mentioned, in order to be saved, you've got to be 100% human, And again, you have to be born again by the Spirit, right? Regenerating. Hmm. See, in that era, that's on the minds of every Jewish person. They knew about Genesis 6. It was on their minds. Right now, no one thinks about it because it's been so far removed. No one talks about it. But it was on their minds. So it appears that Jesus addresses this in salvation. There is no salvation for Nephilim. Because they're not fully human. So with that being the case... What's the theory? Okay, so the theory is, and we'll talk more about this later on, about the difference between a fallen angel and a demon. The theory is this, that the spirits of the Nephilim, once their body was destroyed, once Goliath was killed by David, their spirits are what we consider demons. And that's how they're different than fallen angels. And so from this union... These, these Nephilim live, they were killed, but then their spirits live on, and they live on as what we call demons. Now, that's where I'm going to stop today. Okay, I'm going to fill in a lot more information from ancient Mesopotamian texts, uh, Second Temple Jewish literature. We're going to talk about... Um, when you look in Scripture the difference between a fallen angel and, and a demon and their actions and what they do to show you that this theory is on good grounds that there is a difference at least by from demons to fallen angels, and this Genesis six passage lends support to their origins, okay Again, we're not dogmatic, but I'm just telling you there's a lot of scholars. A lot of theologians that believe this, and some don't. There's debate on this. I take the side that it, that demons are from fallen Nephilim. So we can debate that. No big deal. But anyway, we're going to talk more about that. And I think I think what you'll see is yes, the scriptures describe things differently between fallen angels and demons. They do different things. They act different ways. We'll talk about that next time. Okay. So that's our first introduction into demonology. To understand that demons perhaps come from the origin of Nephilim, their fallen Nephilim. Anyway, we got to go. We'll check you out later. And when we get uh, uh, the second edition to Demonology, make sure you watch it. Make sure you you get this under your belt. And again, if you want to get the outline by Dr. Krukenbaum, go to aerial.org, go to the store, download Demonology. Okay, like I said, I'm, 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 I'm going off track a little bit with all of this, okay? Anyway, we'll see you next time. Keep studying. God bless you guys.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message, And would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.